One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anne Patchett, who is the author of six novels and three books of nonfiction. She was also the editor of Best American Short Stories in 2006. Her works have included Bel Canto, State of Wonder, Truth and Beauty, and The Patron Saint of Liars. Her work has been translated into more than 30 languages, and in addition to writing, she opened Parnassus Books in Nashville in 2011 with a partner. In 2012, Patchett was named one of the most influential people in the world, and we began our interview with a check-in about that. So on a light note, how is it going being one of the most influential people in the world? <laughs> you know, it's it's remarkably like being one of the least influential people in the world. <laughs> It feels like a seamless transition. The funny thing about that is my dear friend Liz Gilbert was named one of the Time Magazine 100 Most Influential People in the World. I think it was 2008. And I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe. I mean, I've had lots of friends who've gotten MacArthur Genius Grants and but this seemed like something else entirely. She was just such a rock star, and I kept saying to her, this is such a big deal. I can't believe this has happened to you. And she was like, yeah, really, you know, not such a big deal. And then when I got it, um, you just realize, oh, you know, everything is this sort of random fix. <laughs> they obviously had 99 people, and they were scrambling around the hall saying, we need we need one more. And somebody yelled out, what about that girl who opened a bookstore? And so I called Lizzie up and said, oh, this isn't actually such a big deal. They, like, give it to everybody. And she said, that's right. That's, that's exactly right. 
You have a new book out called This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. It contains 22 essays on a wide range of topics from the death of your dog to divorce, marriage, the police academy, Catholicism, road tripping, and more. And in one of the essays on writing, you talk about an early encounter with the author Russell Banks. He was your teacher, and he told you your stories weren't deep enough. What was that moment like for you? The wonderful thing about that story, I was a senior in college, um, and I was a kid who really was able to listen to people. I, I wasn't rebellious. I didn't think that adults and authority had it wrong. I really thought that they had it right, and I was there to learn. And I think that there are very few moments in our lives when the right person is there at exactly the right moment and they tell us the truth and we are able to hear it and absorb it and implement that truth. I think that probably there have been thousands of cases since then when people have told me some truth I really needed to hear and I was closed to it for whatever reason and I had to go and make my mistakes and find my own way. But when I had that moment with Russell, I heard him, and what he was saying made absolute sense. I sort of instantly knew he was right, and I was very, very grateful to him. So um, I felt like he had saved me years and years of my life, that I probably would have figured that out on my own, but that it would have taken me so much time. And I think the larger truth for everyone is you can you can take classes, you can go to school, you can do all of these things, you can have teachers give you assignments and get critiques, no matter what you're doing. But the only one at the end of the day who can really make you better is you. The only one who can push you to find the limits of your ability is you. And and you're never going to find someone who's going to be the drill sergeant of your life always, always pushing you to be better. And And I think that that's what Russell was really saying. You know, if you want to find out how good you are or how good you aren't, that's your journey to make, and you're going to have to push yourself and, and do that. When you publish a collection of essays like you have in This is the Story of a Happy Marriage, you're really putting out a lot of details about your personal life from divorces and marriages and your dogs and your family. And I'm wondering if you feel protective of who you are because Of course, that isn't all of you. There's so much more of you to know. But how does putting all that out there affect you? Well, I feel a couple different ways. You know, I have no participation in uh, social media. I've never been on Facebook. I've never done the Twittering thing. And, um, And I think that compared to where people are now in terms of privacy and exposure of details of their life, I'm, I'm an amateur. Um, and I feel like the facts of what happened in my life, facts are facts. Facts, I feel like, can almost never be private because anybody could really dig around and find out a fact. You know, my parents were divorced. I was divorced. My husband was divorced. It's just That's just a fact. Um, So I don't feel the need to guard that. I have a very strong sense of privacy, 
But it's interesting because privacy to me has much more to do with time. It has nothing to do with fact, but it it has to do with time. It has to do with my home. Um, it has to do with the fact that I I own a cell phone. Four people have the number, and I only turn it on when I travel. You know, I don't want people kind of coming into my life, getting a hold of me. That's what feels private. Um, if I tell you a story that I ate poison ivy at Girl Scout camp, that actually doesn't feel private. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Ann Patchett, author of six novels and three books of nonfiction, including This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. So in this new work, you cover a variety of subjects from writing to editing short stories, renting an RV with your ex-boyfriend, who is now your husband, and your relationship with a nun who was one of your primary school teachers. I'm wondering how you chose to arrange the 22 essays in the book. Well, that's a really good question, and it was something that I worked very hard on. And when I put the book together, I was always moving the pieces around and and taking them out. I would read it through, and this went on for about two years, I would read it through and I would think, who's the weak sister? And whichever seemed like the weakest essay in the collection, I would take it out and then I would write another essay. And while I was doing that, extracting, adding, extracting, adding, moving things around, what I was really trying to do is build a narrative arc to tell a story and have it read in a sense the way a novel would read. Um, my problem with books of essays is that so often there'll be two or three or four brilliant essays, fantastic essays in a collection of essays, and then the rest just sort of feels like filler, and and there isn't an overarching story. So my overarching story was really one about commitment. Uh, this is the story of a happy marriage isn't referring to the union of me and my husband, but about the things in my life that I feel deeply committed to. If that's dogs, my family, friendship, work, art, books in general, uh, I wanted all of those things that I felt committed to. And I wanted there to be a narrative flow, which isn't necessarily from childhood to adulthood, although that's part of it, but kind of the arc of learning and the arc of giving myself over more deeply to commitment. And one thing that has absolutely freaked me out in a way that I had no idea would bother me is when I gave the galley to friends and they said, oh, I read the piece about Sister Nina first. And and then I read the happy marriage story. I really wanted to read that. And, and it just makes me feel sick. Because it's like if I gave you my novel and you said, oh, I went straight to chapter eight. I heard chapter eight was terrific. So I read that first and then I read chapter 15. And now I'm going to go back and read chapter two. I mean, it makes me want to faint. And I think I put so much work into building uh, a narrative, a line, a plot to run through this. So it would really work as a whole. And and I guess it's like putting your album on iTunes and having somebody say, and I downloaded two of the songs. <laughs> think, but but there's a whole story there. You can't just download two of the songs. You've got to listen to it in order. You know, the first story is about childhood and Christmas and nuns 
and Catholicism and, you know, a lot of those things get dropped and then kind of coming back to it at the very end as an adult and saying, I didn't judge this situation correctly when I was a child. And that to me thematically is an important thing to say at the end of a book of nonfiction. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. In one of your essays, The Getaway Car, which is about writing, you talk about the translation between a story in your head and getting it on the page. And I'm wondering what that is about and the difficulties of that. Is that that we think in a different language than we write? Is it conceptual versus concrete or something else? For me, I think of it in terms of dimension and the difference between three dimensions and two dimensions and the difference between life uh, and an interpretation of life. An interpretation of life can be extraordinarily beautiful, but frankly, it's never as beautiful as life. So, you know, no matter how well you paint a tree, a tree is always better. And so what I have in my mind when I'm thinking of the book is the tree, is the living thing, uh, not the interpretation of the thing. And the interpretation always falls short of the living thing. So it's, it's always hard. One of the things I talk about in that essay is forgiveness. And I think that that is absolutely the key. The key to writing and the key to life is that you have an ability to do your best work and to try really hard and then to forgive yourself for the fact that it's not as good as you want it to be, that it's not the beautiful thing in your head and to keep going. Because I think that where so many people stop is that they they start to write something and they think, well, that's not it. That's no good. That's not the beautiful thing that I see. Um, I'm no good. I've got, to, I've got to quit this. And then you never get anywhere. Writing is very frustrating in that way. You know, I always say I hate to write and I love to have written. The process of sitting down in the chair is really kind of heartbreaking. Uh, but the process of having a book, gosh, there's nothing better than that. Is it any sort of relief for you to write nonfiction? Is it more clear or more straightforward? Sure. It, nonfiction is just easier for me. I mean, just straight up 100% of the time, 
the very hardest nonfiction piece that I could write is always going to be easier than the very easiest piece of fiction that I could write. Because you have, and, that, and that's not true in general. That's not true for other people. It's not that I think fiction is more valuable than nonfiction, but I think for me, nonfiction is just infinitely easier. And I think it's because in nonfiction, the decisions are already made. I know who the characters are. I know what the setting is. I know when the beginning happens and and when the story comes to an end. All of those things that I struggle with, I know what the point of view is. I know what the voice is. I struggle with those things so much in fiction. And in nonfiction, it's just there. At this point in my life, I'm not really struggling with writing, with making sentences or finding words. I, I'm, I got that down. I'm struggling with finding the story and the character and what makes it interesting. And in nonfiction, for me, that's all completely self-evident. And one thing that actually kind of worries me sometimes um, is that I actually worry if maybe I'm a better nonfiction writer than I am a fiction writer. Um, I don't know. And I kind of don't know what to do with that. But I'm I'm always drawn to fiction in part because it is really such a challenge for me. And it keeps me fully engaged. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Ann Patchett, author of six novels and three books of nonfiction, including This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. You said once that you learned about writing a novel from reading The Casual Vacancy by J.K. Rowling, which came out after you had already written six novels. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that. People ask me all the time about books that influenced me. And and I always say influence for me has much more to do with timing than the actual work. I was greatly influenced by almost everything I read up until I was 22 or something like that. I mean, I, I actually think physiologically the brain begins to calcify and and we're not imprinted in the same way when our brains are young and soft and spongy. So I read things all the time now that uh, are profound pieces of literature, but they don't actually influence me because I'm, I'm no longer really influenceable. But that book by J.K. Rowling, uh, actually, I felt very influenced by that book. I learned something because she worked the whole scale of human emotions. It was as if she was playing a piano and she struck every single key over the course of the novel. The range in that book was astonishing to me. And the pain that she allowed her characters to feel was was really overwhelming. She just kind of says life is hard and, and the characters have fun and they have joy and there's a lot of humor, but but man, when it comes down, it really comes down hard on them. And she she kept all possibilities open. It was a very, very admirable book. So has your relationship with books, and I don't just mean reading, I mean the whole gamut of, of selling yeah. and marketing, yeah. changed a lot since you've had the bookstore? Yes, it really has. I feel in a way that I am a point of intersection 
in so many aspects in publishing now because I have very strong relationships in publishing with with editors and publicists and agents that people that I've met over the course of my life with so many different authors that I know. But now I also know the booksellers, I know the sales reps, I know the buyers, I know the designers, um, and I do feel like I see almost every aspect of the industry, and I'm very interested in that. I'm very, very interested in the business of it. It was something to think about bringing out this book. This is the first book that I'm publishing as a bookseller, and so I had a very strong sense of what I wanted the book to look like because I am in a bookstore every day and I am looking at the shelf and I'm looking at the new release table and I know what I want to see. I, I, have, uh, I thought a lot about the title. Again, these are things that I've always thought a lot about, but I'm thinking about them in a different way, about the release date. It's a book of essays. Book of essays, really tough sell. So... I know that at Christmas in our store, there are like 10 books we sell and really more like five because we are so swamped and we we get our go-to books so that if somebody comes in and says, I want something for my uncle, he was in Vietnam. I want something for my sister. I want something for my babysitter. We we get those titles in our mind, and we're going to start handing people the same books over and over again in a way that if you came into the store in February, we might sit down and talk to you for 20 minutes about your babysitter and what else has she read and what what does she like. So I know that's true for booksellers everywhere, and I thought, I really want to be that title. I really want to be the book that somebody's going to come into the store and say, you know, I, I want a book for my wife, I want a book for my daughter. I want a book from my best friend, and that this is the book that they're going to hand over. So it was really important for me to bring this out at the beginning of November. If it had come out in September or October, it would have gotten lost among the big novels of the season. Well, let's talk for a minute about other writers. I'm wondering if you can read a passage from an author that influenced you or spoke to you at some point in your career. I'm going to read a little bit from Grace Paley. Grace was a teacher of mine and a writer that I absolutely adore and um, a writer that I am nothing like, but she's somebody who always just invigorates me. She has the strongest voice of almost any writer that I know. Actually, Alan Gerganis is like that too, just very, very voice-forward writer. Um, And this is from the Grace Paley Collected Stories, and this is called Two Short Stories from a Long and Happy Life, and the first one is The Used Boy Raisers. There were two husbands, disappointed by eggs. I don't like them that way either, I said. Make your own eggs. They sighed in unison. One man was livid, one was pallid. There isn't a drink around here, is there? asked livid. Never find one here, said pallid. Don't look. Dry as damn house. Pallid pushed the eggs away, pain and disgust. Livid said, now, really, isn't there a drink, beer, he hoped? Nothing, said Pallid, who'd been through the pantries, closets, and refrigerators looking for a white shirt. You're damn right, I said. I buttoned the high button of my powder blue duster. 
I reached under the kitchen table for a brown paper bag full of an embroidery which asked God to bless our home. I was completing this motto for the protection of my sons, who were also livid sons. It is true that some months earlier from a far place, the British Plains in Africa, he had written hospitably to Pallid, I do think they're fine boys, you understand. I love them, too. But Faith is their mother, and now Faith is your wife. I'm so much away. If you want to think of them as yours, old man, go ahead. Why, thank you, Pallet had replied, airmail, overwhelmed. Then he implored the boys, when not in use, to play in their room. He made all efforts to be kind. And so tell me a little bit more about why you chose this specific one. One of the things that I love about Grace's work is that you're there right from the first word. There is no warm-up period. You're not starting the car and letting it run for 20 minutes. You know right from the start where we are. There are three people around this table. We know what their personalities are. We know what their complaints are. There is an immediacy of her characters and of her voice that I think is just spectacular. And the pleasure that I get reading these stories uh, over and over again in my life is never lost on me. Grace had a very small body of work in her life, and it was because she was so many things. She was a phenomenal teacher and wife and mother and friend, but mostly political activist. And she was trying to make the world a better place for all of us. And I think that there's this sense of, let's get to work in every story. Let's get involved. Here we are. She fully was engaged in life. And and that's what comes through in her work. That's what I love. And how about if you read a short passage from something you wrote? It could be something that was hard to write or something that changed from the first draft or something you feel you succeeded at. I'm going to read a piece from the book. This is the story of a happy marriage. And this is an essay called Dog Without End. And the the reason that I'm I'm going to read this is that I was so crushed when my dog died. And she was 16 She had such a lovely life. Most dogs don't live past 16. It was time for her. I understood everything, and I was shocked by how devastated I was when this little creature who I completely understood was ready, was ready. She was at the end of her life, Um, and I was so surprised by my sadness. I mean, I knew I would be sad. I didn't know I would be this sad, and it was almost impossible for me to write about it because I kept thinking people are going to think that I'm crazy. You know, it's a dog. And so anyway, here we go. I want to tell you that Rose was an extraordinary dog, bossy and demanding of attention, comforting in her very presence. Famously, she first appeared in the pages of Vogue 15 years ago. She sat on my shoulder in book jacket photographs. When she was very dirty after a run, I would tell her to go and get in the bathtub, and she would. Once, she scampered onto the headrest of Carl's parked car, made a vertical leap through the open sunroof, and ran across the parking lot into the grocery store and up and down every aisle until she found us. She was loyal and brave and smart as a tree full of owls. By explaining her talents and legions of virtues, though, I would not be making my point. 
which is that the death of my dog hit me harder than the deaths of many people I have known. And this can't be explained away by saying how good she was. She was. But what I was feeling was something else entirely. I came to realize in the months following Rose's death, months that I referred to myself as being in the ditch, that there was between me and every person I had ever loved some element of separation, and that I had never seen it until now. There had been long periods spent apart from the different people I loved, due to nothing more than circumstances. There had been arguments and disappointments, for the most part small and easily reconciled, but over time people break apart, no matter how enormous the love they feel for one another is, and it is through this breaking and reconciliation the love and the doubting of love, the judgment and then the coming together again, that we find our own identity and define our relationships, except that I had never broken from Rose. I had never judged her or wanted her to be different, never wished myself free from her for a single day. When she ate my favorite pair of underwear, had an accident on the carpet, bit my niece, though very lightly and without consequence, I took her side. Was it healing for you to write that? It was hard because I didn't know that I could get the depth of my feeling, that I could say it right, that... I could explain that this loss was larger for me than the loss of some people I had known. I felt kind of ashamed of that in a way because it was a dog and it was a very old dog. Um, And I couldn't, I wanted to put into words how devastated I was because I thought it would be helpful. And I think it really has been helpful for a lot of people. I think it was a job worth doing. But um, it was just, it was kind of tough to get to make that point and make it seem sensible and, and true to my experience. Where do you write? I like to write at home, but I will write anywhere. I'm, I'm not fussy. I don't have to be in a particular place. I have a nice office in my house. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, every time I'm not writing, I'm away from writing. It's not like I have to go to Miami or Paris or something. Really, going to the grocery store works just fine. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? In my life, I've always shown it to Elizabeth McCracken. And now that Elizabeth McCracken has two lovely children and a big job, (laughs) I tend to show it to my friend Miley Malloy. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, I hate to say this, but it's been a long time. Um, Rejection... At this point in my life, really isn't so much an issue. And I have always had the philosophy, you can't win if you don't play. So I think that the only way you accomplish anything is to put yourself out there a lot and be okay with rejection because in balance of rejection, you're also going to win sometimes. And what is your favorite word? Oh, well, my favorite word, peace. How about that? Peace. 